morning is uh, Christmas Day, and we will meet here at at 10 o'clock, as we always do on Sunday morning, and worship our Lord. And so uh, I hope that you'll <clears throat> you're making your plans to be here. I can't think of any better day to worship the Lord than on Christmas Day being on Sunday morning. And I am saddened by so many churches that I have heard of that have canceled their services on next Sunday because it's Christmas Day. I, I Maybe I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm just an old fogey. But um, I just don't understand how that uh, you, you would want to give up that. Uh, well, I'll stop. I'll say something I'm not supposed to say if I keep on going. It's good to see you all here this morning, and God bless each one of you. I was thinking as I was sitting there this morning, uh, just how much, how much I love this church, how much of a family we are for one another. It wasn't always like that. God has blessed us over these these years, at least the last ten or eleven years, <clears throat> with a spirit of unity and family. Uh, orientation that is beyond anything that I have ever seen in my 42 years of ministry. And that is, that is because of Christ and what He's done in all of our hearts. So, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Turn with me to John 6. I'll preach from John 6 this morning and then next week <clears throat> I'll bring a Christmas more Christmas message, uh, but this morning I want us to concentrate on a few verses here as we uh, look to finishing up this discourse on the bread of life, probably um, on New Year's Day. Uh, I'll go back and finish this chapter up, but today I'll ask you to follow with me as we read verses 60 through 66. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were, who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. After this, many disciples, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have once again to come and to worship, and we pray now your blessing upon the word and the message from it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 
There are many people, if not most people, who have been offended by the gospel. From our viewpoint, as believers, it's difficult for us to understand sometimes why a message that offers forgiveness and peace and a future home of love with warmth and joy could be hated by so much by the masses. But we forget that we too were once haters of that message just like everyone else. Jesus' words of how to gain eternal life in speaking to these Jews at the synagogue in Capernaum were had fallen on deaf ears. These were difficult things that he was saying, hard things. So hard, in fact, that they became disagreeable to the fallen souls that were in love with their sin. That's the truth of mankind. Man loves his sin. And anything anything that disrupts or speaks against Inherent fallen humanity and their sin, they hate. To give up one's whole life to follow Jesus? I mean, can I just have Jesus and carry on with my life as I please? The answer is no. No, you can't. For when you take Jesus, when you follow Jesus... You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Him. Wherever He leads, that's where you go. Whatever He says, that's what you do. You you literally die to yourself. That's what He taught in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Do you not know these things? Jesus speaks these words. They were offended by them. Now look, notice that word offended in verse 61. Do these things offend you? Do you take offense at them? The word offense is the Greek word skandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal or scandalize. It means to cause someone to stumble. It has the idea of being offended to the point of disbelieving. Whatever whatever kind of faith that these Jews had in Jesus, it wasn't a real biblical faith. It was a fake, false sense of following. Jesus used the same word. Turn with me to Matthew 13. Just back a few pages. Matthew 13, look at verses 20 to 22. He used the same word in the parable of the sower... In verse 20 of chapter 13, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately 
receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The word falls, the words falls away is the same word that he uses here for offended. To be offended is to stumble and fall away. It is to, if you, if you say you believe, it is to disbelieve. It is to prove that one does not believe. This is one of the disastrous outcomes of a weak gospel that saves no one. These disciples were disciples in name only. They had not been enlightened by the Spirit, nor had their hard hearts been regenerated. The reaction was they stumbled over his words. That's what Jesus said This seed happens to this seed. It's, it's received with joy and then it becomes offended because of the word, because of Christ's words. This is too hard to hear, too hard to do. This is what they were saying. The truth is, unless the Holy Spirit does the work in a person's life, it can't be done. As Calvin said, and I paraphrase, it wasn't the hardness of the teaching that caused their grumbling and murmuring and final rejection. It was the hardness of their own hearts that caused their reaction. Then Jesus makes another statement, a statement about where he came from, where he was going, and what he came to do. Now, how how would that affect the unbelieving hearts would be far greater than any previous message that they might have heard from him? Notice what he says in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, what is he saying? Well, I think he's possibly and most likely speaking of both his ascension to the cross and his ascension to heaven. What would they think if they saw him hanging on a cross after he claimed to be the Messiah? In their mind, the Messiah was the one who would come, who would deliver them, who would make the Jews the supreme race of humanity. What would they think when he's hanging on a cross? Ascended up on a cross. And what would they think when they, if they saw him ascend up into heaven? Would that not prove that he came down from heaven? If they were offended at this, at his words of giving his flesh as bread to the, for the world and people had to eat that flesh, how much more would they be offended by his execution considering that he was dying on a cross? The Apostle Paul, had our, Apostle Paul said it in Galatians 3, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The Jews knew this. But they are only thinking in physical terms and not spiritual terms. So Jesus elaborates 
with a warning not to consider his words like that. Not to consider his words as just physical, but as spiritual. And so he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you, they are spirit. They are life. He's trying to show them the importance of listening to his words and believing what he says. He's saying whether they really, he's saying whether they believe or whether they don't believe, it will not change God's sovereign power over the lives of people everywhere. God is still in charge. He is still doing his work. They cannot make themselves believe. He's already told them that. So what he's doing is he's contrasting the spirit who gives life with the flesh that can do nothing spiritual but abides in death. That's what he's contrasting. Now, why does he say this? Because John had already said it earlier in chapter 1, verse 13, that salvation cannot be attained by the will of man. Who were born, John 1, 13, who were born not of blood, it's not in bloodlines, nor of the will of the flesh. There's nothing you can do externally to gain it. Nor of the will of man. You can't, you can't attain it internally. Because you're dead. But of God. It's God's doing. God is the one that does this. It's the Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and does work on the human heart. If it is the Spirit that gives life, then what medium does the Spirit use in accomplishing that? And Jesus says very clearly that it is His Word that does that. His Word has life in it because it comes from Jesus' own life. Accepting or rejecting those words is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Over and over we see this in Scripture. John 8.31, if you abide in my word, then are you truly my disciples. John John chapter 8 verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Jeremiah 15 verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 1 John 2.14, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Remember this rule. God does nothing in the lives of human beings outside of his word. It's the word of God that does the work of God. That's how the Spirit designs it. 
False disciples do not abide in the word of God. They may appear at first to be among those who do. But eventually in the end they reject it. And at the very best they twist it to fit their own perverted lifestyles. Oh how much that is happening in our world today. We see, we see politicians taking the word of God, the words of Christ, and applying them to sinful things. So that they are, so it looks like Jesus approves. What a blasphemous thing that is. To receive Jesus is to receive his word. It is that which transmits the truth about God's Son, and brings salvation to the lost. The seed, Jesus said, is the Word of God. The seed in the good soil are those who, hearing the Word of God, hold fast in an honest and true heart and bring forth fruit. James 1.18 Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of Truth. James 1.21, it is the meekness of the word, implanted word, which is able to save your souls. 1 Peter 1.23, through the living and abiding word of God, we've been born again. Can't be underestimated. Can't be under, cannot be understated. The omniscience of Jesus is clear in this passage. He knows those who are the believing ones and those who are not. Notice what he says. There are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knows who they are. He's indicating that he knows the hearts of people. Something you and I cannot do. Something only God can do. Even the angels themselves cannot know the hearts of people. But notice that last line in verse 64. It indicates that God, God's plan and the carrying out of that plan would mean that he would have to be betrayed by one very close to him. Of course, he's speaking of Judas, which is explained in, in verses 71 and <clears throat> 70 and 71, notice what he says. Jesus answered, did I not choose you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? That's an interesting phrase. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew from the very beginning. And when I say from the very beginning, I mean from the very beginning in eternity past. Not just from the beginning of his ministry. But from, eter- from all eternity, he knew who would be real and who wouldn't be. Way back before he was ever sent as a babe in the manger in Bethlehem. Second Timothy 2.19, God's, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal... The Lord knows those that are His. He knows those that are His. 
This whole idea of disciples, false disciples, would become a constant problem throughout church history. It's still the same today as it was in times past. There would always be, and there always have been, unbelievers scattered among the genuine believers. This became very evident when Jesus taught the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew chapter 13. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have these weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said, then do you want us to go and gather them in? And he said, no. Leave them. And they'll be separated in the harvest. The time of the harvest is coming when God will send His angels to gather in His harvest and all the others will be bound and burned. Jesus knew that Judas was the betrayer who would turn him over to the Jewish authorities. Judas was the weed among the wheat. Judas then becomes the supreme example of an unbeliever. What they're capable of. He was numbered with the twelve. He acted as their treasurer. And no one suspected that he was an unbeliever. That's just how people can fool and be fooled. You've seen it. People who you thought were believers. And then all of a sudden you find that they've gone back to the world or they're they're, they've forsaken, they've forsaken the church, they've forsaken Christ. And you wonder, how can these things be? It's because they were unbelievers all along. Jesus knew that he had an imposter among the twelve. In that sense, it was to be expected that not all people Because not all people are given the gift of grace. He, He expected this. He knew it. This is why he says in verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. That's why he said it in the first place. You say, well, that's not a very... It doesn't sound like a great way to witness To tell people they can't come to Christ. Well, Jesus did it. I think it's a great thing because it lets people know that they have no ability to do it to start with. You have people say to you, oh, I could never do that. And they're right. I could never do that. I usually agree with them when they say that. I say, yeah, you're right. You could never do it. It's God that has to do it in you. You can't do it yourself. This reinforced his earlier statement in verses 44 and 45. And it is here that we see again the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seem to be on opposite poles and impossible to to reconcile. And yet, in our minds, they are that. Impossible to reconcile. But in God's 
mind, they're not. This is God's doing. I don't have to explain it. I just have to believe it. Unbelievers are condemned because they don't believe. On the other hand, they're lost because the Father didn't draw them. Can you explain that? I can't. But I believe it. Because that's what the Bible teaches. As a result of all that Jesus had said, we see the outcome of this in verses 66 through 71. The last part... This is the last part of this discourse that describes clearly the difference between true and false followers of Christ. I'm not going to deal with all those verses, just that one verse in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, we had a full morning this morning, so I'm going to take just a few extra minutes to speak about speak on verse 66 because it is a very important one for us to see and understand. There were things here that the crowd found too hard to hear, too hard to do. And that was Christ's teaching on what it means to gain eternal life, to have salvation To be forgiven of their sins. They're the same things that people find hard to deal with today. Human, the human heart and mind is not changed. Only the times change. First of all, it was the teaching that related, that was related to Christ's incarnation. The fact that he came down from heaven in human flesh. That's part of his teaching. That's one of the things they balked at. In essence, it implied that he was claiming to be divine, that he was claiming to be God, because he was making himself equal with the Father in heaven. They understood this from verse 33, verse 38, verse 51. Second... It was his teaching that had gone to that he had to go to the cross and sacrifice himself for the sins of those whom the Father had given him. He wasn't sacrificing himself for every single individual on earth, but for those whom the Father had given him. This they also became disturbed about. Maybe they could have understood that one might pay for their own sins, but to think that Jesus had to pay for their sins and earn salvation that they couldn't earn for themselves was just too much for them to take in. Lastly, lastly, it was his teaching that he taught the reason they didn't believe in him was because they couldn't believe unless God the Father had determined beforehand to give them to Jesus. This seems to be the thing that people fail at the most, even today. The fact that God is selective in whom He saves. You can't get around it. God doesn't save everyone. 
And since man can't save himself, then God saves some, not all. This, this taught that man was unable to believe and please God, and that it was necessary for God to extend his electing grace in salvation in order that that happen. It took the determining factor of eternity out of the hands of people and places it in the hands of God where it belongs. It lets God be God. Man is not the center of this. God is. We see that in verse 37 and verse 44. All this runs contrary, runs counter to the normal way of thinking. The response that one would expect of those who want comfort, it would be the response of one, what one would expect of those who want comfort over complication, who want self-satisfaction over submission to Christ. They stopped following him. Notice the words turned back, verse 66. Turned back. They turned back. Literally means to go in search of or to hunt something. Now, I'm going to compare this. Turn to Jude chapter 7 or Jude verse 7. There's no chapter 7. Jude, just before Revelation, look at verse 7. I want you to notice what he says here. I'll give a little commentary as we go along. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Do you see the word pursued? It's the same word. For turned back. That's what turning back means. It means you pursue something. So in other words. They turned back. These people in Sodom and Gomorrah. They turned away from the natural desire. Natural sexual desires. To unnatural sexual desires. Namely homosexuality. Now follow along. They turned, they, they pursued unnatural desire, serve, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The people of Sodom renounced their relationship with natural desire for unnatural desire. Now, apply that same thought to the word turned back. What did these false disciples do? They, they decided not to follow Jesus any longer and pursued what? If the word means pursue, then what were they pursuing? They were pursuing their own natural desires. Their fallen desires. 
It means they turned away from him so as to renounce him, to give up on the relationship. And how do people normally do that? How do people normally give up on relationships? Generally, they leave the one that they have a relationship with. That's what they did. And they pursued their own old fallen life. In other words, they abandoned him decisively. Jesus did not attempt to soften his words, but made them even harder so that So that they were harder to hear because the razor sharp edge of the truth of the gospel separates the truth from the false. False disciples cannot tolerate the truth of God's sovereign work in salvation. They just can't tolerate it. Why? Because it takes it out of their hands. People want to be in control. I'm in control of my life. I can decide. I've had people say it to me. I'll decide when I become a Christian. And I said, no, you won't. No, you won't. The parallel theme here to this passage is found in Luke chapter 4. Where Jesus talked about uh, Elijah, Elijah and uh The widow at Zarephath talked about Naaman, the Syrian. Those two being chosen out of all the masses of Israel. One widow was chosen. One Syrian was chosen to be healed of leprosy. Not all lepers. Not all the people, all the widows in in, uh, Israel. Just those God chose. And do you know what happened in Luke 4? They became so angry at his words on the sovereignty of God's work that they took him to the edge of a cliff and were going to throw him over the cliff and murder him there. And he escaped, of course, out of their their hands because it wasn't his time to die. He already had an appointment for death on a cross. Human nature has not changed. Just let the sovereign acts of God be emphasized and people get angry because they want to be in control. I can see that these people were extremely displeased. So what did they turn back to? They went back to their old life they had always known. They went back home. They went to their old relationships. They went back to the world. They went back to their dead moralism. They went back to their inadequate secular ideologies. They went back to the very familiar place of maximum human freedom in which they were imprisoned and they never walked with him Again, it was a permanent defection. What a sad commentary on those who had eternal life offered to them by the creator of the universe and they outright rejected it. 
F.F. Bruce writes this, What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. That's the long and short of it, folks. They proved that they were not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Luke 9.62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Those who say that they're believers, those who say they're Christians, and they defect and go back into the world, they're just proving that they're not real disciples of Christ. You say, well, that's a pretty sad message, Pastor Mark. Yes, it is. But it is a real message. It is a, it is a reality of life. This is why Jesus said the path to life is narrow and there are few who find it. We have a system across America today in evangelicalism. They call it, they call, they say they're preaching the gospel. But it's been so maligned, so adulterated, so watered down, so, so weakened that people don't even know what the real message of the gospel is. Consequently, churches everywhere filled with goats pretending to be sheep. Let it not be that way. Examine yourself. Examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. To see if my faith is real. To see if I really am trusting in Jesus Christ. That's what America needs. That's what every church needs. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the salvation that you have given us. I pray, Father, that as we do examine ourselves, we would find ourselves trusting in you and you alone. That our our lives would show forth the fruit that comes from Christ in us and us in Him. And I pray, Father, that You would just continue to teach us from Your Word, to rely upon You. Your Word is what we need. It is what brings faith. It is what gives joy. It is what provides hope. And I pray, Lord, that it would be that which sustains us even in the hardest Of times. This is the message for Christmas. I pray it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. All right. Uh, We have.